It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app. And the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods. And it just allows the users to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the gearbox and what the gearbox is it is a an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the go wild community is using in the field what products they're using but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products there's you, there's a shopping function on it so Check out the Go Wild app. If you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet, you need to, and you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, and today's episode is about Lake Erie walleye. So not a hunting episode, but a fishing episode, and we sort of seek to answer the question, are we in the good old days of Lake Erie walleye fishing? We've heard, you know, we've, we've seen people talk or, or heard people talk online about this being sort of the heyday, if you will, of Lake Erie walleye fishing. And so we brought somebody on, we, we, we brought a guest on that would know, right? He has the data to uh, support or refute this question I guess and so that's what we talk about today so if you're a Lake Erie walleye guy you definitely want to listen to this one be sure to send this to your 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 fishing buddies because there's a lot of interesting stuff in this one before we get into that we need to talk about our sponsor Mastin's Deer Sense so Mastin's is a is a deer scent company and 
they've got a lot of interesting products. They've got scented candles, right? You don't typically think of, of scented candles when it comes to deer hunting, but they're scented candles. They're, it's not like potpourri. It's deer scented candles that you can use in there. They've got this item called a double scent stacker, which basically allows you to layer scents. So you put a, a deer scented candle down in this. It's like an aluminum tube, so it's lightweight. It keeps the wind from blowing the candle out. And then you can put liquid scent in a tray above it and it warms that scent and, and helps disperse it. So you can kind of layer scents and do really interesting things with scent. So if scent is something that you want to use, that you typically use, or you maybe want to try for the first time this fall, I encourage you to check out Mastin's. You can go to mastinsdeersense.com or go to ohiohuntsman.com sponsors. There's a link there, takes you right to their website, and you can at least check out what they've got, check out their prices, which I'll tell you are really good. And if you do decide to buy, you order right on their site and they ship it to your house. And with that, let's get into our conversation about Lake Erie walleye. Welcome to the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, where three brothers, Jason, Jacob, and Jeff, discuss all things hunting in Ohio. Our goal is to be your source for accurate and reliable hunting news and conservation issues in the great state of Ohio, as well as some fun and interesting conversations along the way. This is the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. Are you listening? All right. So today on the show, we've got Travis Hartman with the ODNR Division of Wildlife, and we are going to talk walleye. So we, we did a, an episode, oh, it's been probably a month or so ago, on Ohio's native brook trout species. Now we're going to have a conversation about you know, more of a, a game fish, maybe people, maybe a fish, I'm sure a fish that's, that people are more aware of or more familiar with. And so that's why we brought Travis on. So Travis, first of all, thank you for taking time out of your, your evening to come on and talk to us. And if you could just sort of run through your background, what it is you do with the division of wildlife and I guess what, what qualifies you to, to lead us through this conversation on, on walleye? Well, thanks. I, I appreciate you having me on this evening. Uh, really excited to talk about Lake Erie and our walleye. I'm currently the Lake Erie Program Administrator for the Division of Wildlife. I'm stationed at the Sandusky Fish Research Unit in Sandusky, Ohio. And basically all that means is I get to manage our fisheries management and research program on Lake Erie. So I, I work at Sandusky. I have uh, the two offices that I oversee, the Sandusky office and also Fairport Harbor, which is our office east of Cleveland that works in the central basin. And I, I was fortunate to get to work as a fisheries biologist uh, since 2003. So 2003 through 2016, I was a harvest assessment biologist at the Sandusky office. I got to pretty well work with, with anything harvest with our uh, fishermen with our angler survey, and then also with our uh, commercial fishing assessment. So for 13 years or so, I worked on harvest uh, on Lake Erie, and now I get to oversee our, our whole program. And we're, we're really fortunate to have the walleye fishery we have right now and excited to, to dive into it a little deeper with you guys. Okay. 
So I guess that's a good place to jump off because that's kind of what prompted us to reach out to you um, was sort of the state of walleye. We've heard, and, you know, I'll be frank, I'm, I'm not a big walleye fisher, but we've heard, you know, through the, the internets and things that uh, we are we are potentially in, you know, quote, the good old days of, of walleye in Lake Erie. We, you know, we're, we're having really good high walleye population. So could you sort of speak to that? Is there is there evidence to support people's feelings that, you know, walleye in Lake Erie is really good right now or just kind of talk to the current state of affairs of walleye in Lake Erie? You know, fortunately, I, I'm uh, managing our program right now. And one of the, the real strengths of our program is we have very long-term data sets. So, you know, the, the strength in fishery management, what we base our decisions on isn't just a five or 10 or even 15 year history. We Many of our current day data sets started in the late 70s and early 80s. So we really do have great ways to compare what the walleye population is like right now and how specifically how fishing compares to, to how it did decades ago. And the history of Lake Erie walleye is very well documented. You know, Lake Erie had environmental issues that, that were well publicized in the 50s and 60s, and it kind of culminated in that picture of the Cuyahoga River on fire that made the cover of Time magazine. And that started every, the ball rolling. That, that got the Clean Water Act approved. That, that really started the environmental cleanup of Lake Erie. And it's all resulted in where we are now with uh, a really healthy lake and, and a great walleye population. And if we directly compare where we are right now, you know, about two years ago, I started mentioning that we're kind of approaching the 80s, that we're getting back to the good old days, that we're having catch rates, angler success, and a walleye population that was starting to look like it did in the 80s. And quite honestly, you know, we, we never imagined we'd be there again. We kind of viewed the 80s as a unique time period, uh, unique walleye population and productivity that we just might not see again. And now we've come full circle to where at this point in time, I, I can pretty confidently say these are the good old days. This this is even better than the 80s. And, and the way we judge that is through angler success. You know, how many walleye are we harvesting per hour? If you and your brothers go out on a trip, you know, what's your harvest rate per hour of fishing time spent? And we look back at the 80s, and although it doesn't sound impressive, we were at a 0.5 harvest rate. So every hour spent fishing for a walleye, you'd, you'd catch a half a walleye, or basically it'd take two hours for every walleye that you harvested. Okay. And while that doesn't, while that doesn't sound high, it's actually regionally very high. Like most Midwest walleye fisheries uh, are shooting for 0.15. That you know, oh, wow. they have a very low harvest rate. You know, you have to you have to spend hours and hours to harvest a walleye, and, and getting a limit isn't a, a common thing. Maybe during the best time of the year, you get some limits. Or, uh, you know, maybe you catch them a little faster during peak times. But for a whole season, you can't expect really high catch rates. And so that that's our time period. We compare to the 80s, you know, we had great fishing in the 80s. We harvested half a walleye per hour, and it was good times. And fast forward to now, these last two seasons, we've actually started approaching the point where we could double the 80s. We're at a 0.8 harvest rate. And 
things look even better this year. It, it wouldn't surprise me if we were around that one fish harvested per hour. And wow. it, it's just, it's kind of hard to put in perspective because we're talking about low numbers and we're comparing to, if, you know, 40 years ago. But uh, it, it really is that good. Everything we measure says we're, we're right back in some of the best fishing we've ever seen. seen. Awesome. <clears throat> so you're looking at harvest rates is that is that the only way you monitor populations or or do you do other uh population studies as well so we we have a lot of different ways that we index what's going on so the the angler survey i mentioned is is very specific to how we estimate how many fish we harvest because that's really important in the big picture you know how how many walleye are being produced by natural reproduction and and we look at that through our trawl survey we have a research vessel we pull a trawl on the bottom of the lake at 40 sites in the Western Basin every August and September. And we have a good way to predict how many fish are coming from the current year class based on comparing that trawl to the last 30 years of data. So we have fish coming in, we have harvest being the fish coming out. And then on top of that, we also do an October survey where we set survey gill nets. Uh, We set nets in the evening, we pull them the next morning, and we look at the size and age and numbers of walleye that we catch uh, in that that survey that's independent from the harvest it you know doesn't rely on anglers catching fish it's our population survey that we do so inclusively you know we're looking at young fish through the trawls we're looking at old fish through our population survey and we're looking at fish being harvested through our angler survey and the the best part of this whole thing is it's, it's not just us it's not just ohio we're not surveying and managing in a vacuum for our own needs we're working with all uh, all the jurisdictions around the lakes so michigan ourselves pennsylvania new york and ontario and the five of us work together through the great lakes fishery commission through the lake erie committee so everyone contributes surveys Uh, we all come together each year and agree to safe harvest levels and then uh, it's an annual process where it starts all over again. So it, it's really cool to see this scenario where four states and a province work together and, and manage a, a fishery with conservation and sustainability in mind. That's a, that's a good point because I think in Ohio, that's a little bit of a, a unique scenario in the Great Lakes. I guess any states that that border one of the Great Lakes are, are probably in a similar situation, but most of our other species, I guess other than maybe our migratory species, <clears throat> our, you know, management is sort of solely up to you all at the Division of Wildlife and, you know, quotas and things like that. But mm-hmm. but Lake Erie, with multiple states bordering that that resource, if you will, there's a, you know, like you mentioned, there's there's other factors that go into it. Is there ever a scenario where there's a a discrepancy or a disagreement between the the states that are all included in that? You know, I'll go as far as to say that he mentioned that this is a pretty unique situation. I, I I'll I'll argue that it's the most interesting freshwater fisheries management scenario probably in the world. And you know, over the long history, how we manage this shared resource has changed. And and I'm benefiting from some incredible predecessors and and a lot of 
um, relationship building that's been done over the years. And, and absolutely, there were even as recently as 10 to 15 years ago, there, there were some serious disagreements about how many fish should be harvested, uh, how to model the population, how to set quotas. You know, this we, we didn't get here through a, a couple conversations over a couple years. This has been decades and decades in the making. And we all have our own needs. You know, com- Ontario has a large commercial fishery, and that, that commercial fishery needs stability and, and needs certain levels of harvest when it's appropriate. And in the U.S., we have mostly angler, uh, you know, recreational fisheries, but within that are charter fisheries. And every jurisdiction has a little bit of a different need and a little bit of a different fishery. But through, you know, lots of relationship building, through lots of research and survey and and quite frankly a lot of stakeholder input we we've over the last decade done a lot to bring the stakeholders in and and hear from the commercial fisheries what's important to them and hear from our charter and recreational fisheries what's important to them and we've incorporated all these needs into how we manage and quite frankly i I think we're in the best place we've ever been and right now we're benefiting from big hatches obviously nothing we're doing is making these large hatches a lot of that comes down to timing of conditions and mother nature but how we uh, use those resources and utilize them and harvest them and and conserve them that that's absolutely the management process and it's pretty cool to see it come to the point that it's come to and and we're really benefiting from true interjurisdictional management okay yeah, so, you you mentioned the big hatches. Um, is there any other? Can you explain the factors that are kind of causing uh, this increase in walleye quality and population? Like, is there many factors? Or well, the the real short answer is there there are a whole lot of factors, and a lot of them come down to not just the individual factors, but the timing. So. What is the winter like and is there ice cover and and what kind of spring conditions does that dictate? So when does the ice come off the lake and then what do warming rates look like? And at at the end of the day, uh, we likely have more than enough eggs dropped every year to have giant hatches. We're not female limited. We're not egg limited. We have the what we need for a large hatch every single year. But the question is, do the eggs survive and hatch? And then ultimately, do those larvae end up somewhere where they can eat when their yolk sac is used up? So when they need to feed, that first feeding and those early feedings, are they in nursery habitat that has plankton blooms and, and leads to high survival? So when you look over the history of the lake, uh, water level fluctuates a lot. We do see a, a connection between high water and good hatches. In the 80s, we, were, we had really high water and had lots of good hatches. And we're kind of right back in that now where we're setting water level records. And again, we're getting big hatches. So it looks like an obvious connection there. But outside of high water periods, it does seem like a harder winter that dictates a later spring kind of gives us the best chance at a good hatch. And it seems like only lately high water has trumped that because we haven't had hard winters lately, but we do have the high water and now we're getting big hatches. So. There are a lot of natural factors there. Uh, very few of them actually come back to the population. We've had huge hatches with small populations, and we've had uh, very small hatches with large populations. So we're fortunate on Erie not to have a direct tie to that population size. We don't need a unique population size to get great hatches. 
we just need the conditions to line up and and hopefully end up with high survival. Okay. okay. So, so it's a you know much like all of these much like all of these scenarios are when we you know when we start to dig into them with you know with one of you uh, I'll say the pros you know at the Division of Wildlife these are multi-factor highly complex systems that uh, there's a lot of variables and and moving pieces contained in there so it, it sounds like a lot of this is just what mother nature deals us is there anything i mean correct me if i'm wrong but is there anything then that we are or can do to help maintain these quote good old days for for the foreseeable future so at, at the end of the day when you look at a species like walleye uh, we're lucky that they live so long so Literally, it's very common for us to see walleye that are in the 10 to 15 year old age range. So when you do get a big hatch, one of our our prior big hatches was 2003. Well, here in 2020, those are our trophy fish. We're still harvesting fish from 2003. So you can definitely see the, the benefit from conservative management, sustainability. You know, if we harvest these good year classes at a reasonable rate and and maintain those individual fish for for later years you know that that's the best we can do we can conservatively harvest we can have a, a diverse age range a diverse population structure and then when we get these these great conditions we benefit from it with large hatches you know we we don't know right now if we'll get another hatch for the next five years or more we we got some really inconsistent reproduction around that 2003 year class leading up to the 2003 we'd had some year class failures and then we had quite a few failure failures after 2003 so at the end of the day we try to conservatively harvest manage a species like walleye for age diversity size diversity and then when we get a, a year class like this, you know, it's, it's okay to bump quota up a little bit because we have some excess resources. You know, we the commercial fishery is, is at the highest quota they've been in quite a while. Our anglers are at a six bag limit all year. We don't have a spring reduction. And it, it's still a very safe level of harvest historically. Okay. So I guess then <laughs> what is the... What is the biggest threat to, you know, if you had to sort of put your finger on one thing, right? What What is the biggest thing that would really hurt the walleye population? So, I mean, look at the big picture. And, and obviously, Lake Erie has been through a lot. You know, it, it changed a whole lot in the early to mid-1900s. And then we had pollution that we had to come out of, as I mentioned, in the 60s and 70s. And... It, we know walleye are adaptable. We know that that when we have tough conditions, that walleye are one of those species that was able to make it through it. But the things that I that I'm concerned about are things like invasive species, and and I think a lot of people go right to the the Asian carp and and gobies and zebra mussels and those types of invaders that we get through ballast water, but honestly, something even like a, a virus or a, a new fish disease. Something like that that we can't even see with our naked eye could be the next big invader that that has a big impact. So 
as always, I think we need to be vigilant. You know, we need to stop the spread of invasives. We need to, to manage uh, any sor- sources of potential new invaders. But, but it's things like that that, that are truly a, a threat. I'm, I'm very comfortable in our current managed scenario with the Great Lake Fishery Commission and Lake Erie Committee. I'm not concerned about over-harvest or, or things that we directly have control over. It, it's things like uh, invasive species or even, you know, long-term, if, if there's massive climate change ahead of us, that can change a lot that we can't control. So it's, it's kind of those big picture things that, that are a concern. And in the meantime, we, we manage the things that we have control over, like harvest. Sure. Let's pause here briefly to talk about our other sponsor, Monster Whitetail Grub. So Monster Whitetail Grub is a deer feed company, and they're an Ohio deer feed company. So if you're looking for a way to support the Ohio economy while also getting a product that you're going to use for, for deer hunting, check out Monster Whitetail Grub. It's a good company and they make a good product. They've got their signature Monster Whitetail Grub feed, which is a high protein feed. It's got mineral mixed in. You can get all kinds of different additives. You can get whole peanuts added to Monster Whitetail Grub. They've also got flavored corn, which amps up your standard corn, turns it into a long range attractant, and then you can get just straight mineral. So whatever you want, whatever you need, they have it. So check them out. Go to ohiohuntsman.com slash sponsors, and you can find information about our sponsors there and try some of their stuff. Now, let's get back into the conversation. So you mentioned invasive species. One thing, you know, one question I've had is how effective are we, you know, we as a whole at sort of... uh, reducing or or stopping the spread of of invasive species so you know you see the signs at the boat ramps about look out for these things and and be careful of potentially transporting these things to other bodies of water how good have we done about stopping or slowing the spread of of some of these invasive species you know, my, my personal opinion, I, I think we're getting a lot better at recognizing the, the threats. You know, I, and it, it starts with every angler acknowledging that that releasing bait or moving bait from one system to another could be an issue. Uh, even things like plants on tra- boat trailers going from one ramp to another or one lake to another. You know, I, I think we're getting better and better as anglers at recognizing those types of things. And in a system like the Great Lakes, there are certain things we just don't have control over, um, but but I think we're getting better at it. You know, there's we realize that ballast water is a, a big vector, and it, it's managed much better than it ever was decades ago. Uh, we know that connections between the Mississippi River and the Great Lakes system, connections that aren't natural, aren't a good thing, and we need to better manage and, and minimize those connections as much as possible. Sure. And and quite frankly, you know, I, I mentioned climate change a little bit. As temperatures and seasons and, and cl- as climate changes, it it changes the potential invaders. So I, I I think again, it's just it's a recognition of of what the risks are. Is doing the most we can to minimize those potential vectors. And at the end of the day, we we do our best and and hope that we minimize the spread. And I think we have some clear, pretty clear evidence that. 
that we are capable of, of minimizing the spread of, of non-native species. And uh, a lot of people put a lot of work into it. And, you know, I have uh, coworkers in, in Columbus that are, that's their responsibilities to, to think about and, and manage and worry about invasives. And um, it's one of those things that we'll, we'll always be battling and always be cognizant of, and hopefully we continue to get better. I I'm happy to hear that because as as our listeners know I you know I've I have an ongoing struggle with invasive species that in in my yard um, <laughs> you know not aquatic I guess I got phragmites in a in a wet oh, okay. area in the back and man that <laughs> that stuff is hard to kill um, it is so I uh, I guess I hold a uh, a special hatred for, for, uh, invasive species and, and, you know, trying to minimize their spread and, and get rid of those things. So that's well, why I, I asked. You, you brought up a good example. And I, I think the, the most important lesson we've learned is the, the most effort and the most resources need to be put into stopping new invasions because look at zebras, zebra mussels and, and gobies and even things like spiny water flea, which is an invasive plankton. Once they're here and reproducing, they're established and they're here. You know, we can, we can spend a lot of resources managing things like sea lamprey and the fishery commission does a great job of minimizing sea lamprey numbers as much as possible. But, but once they're here and established at best, we can hope for control we really need to put our effort into to stopping new invaders because uh, that's that's the most critical battle. Okay. So, I guess uh, Jacob, Jeff, unless unless you have a question you want to ask, I am gonna sort of uh, throw out some of my uneducated knowledge on walleye and and sort of ask you what may seem like some basic walleye questions, but you know, we talk about Lake Erie walleye, but do walleye uh, span out into some of the connecting rivers, or are they primarily a you know a large body of water fish? You know, our Lake Erie walleye are very migratory, and that's probably some of the uh, newest information we've learned through new tagging technologies is how far they migrate how seasonally different it can be and how different groups of fish migrate in different ways. Uh, we absolutely have walleye moving into the rivers to spawn. So in the spring, you can go to the Sandusky River, the Maumee River, even the Grand River in Fairport, and you have a chance at catching big adult Lake Erie walleye that are coming into the rivers to spawn. And then throughout the year, they migrate as far east as Buffalo and the Niagara River. And then they, they come back in the fall here to our waters in Ohio. And we even have fish that go up to the Detroit River and Lake St. Clair and Lake Huron. So it, it really is a big open system. And one of the reasons we still have walleye after all the environmental changes is they are so adaptive. And there are so many different groups or stocks of walleye that have different migration patterns. So. Uh, Lake Erie is kind of the ideal habitat for walleye, being a big open system, and, and they utilize every piece of water they can get to. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 
you talked about the Sandusky Bay and the Maumee River and in spawning. And that's basically where, you know, everybody talks about walleye spawning. Um, is there other areas, rivers, uh, shallow reefs um, where, where the walleye spawn that are also that are significant? That's a great question because I, I think that's something else we're seeing that's a more recent phenomenon. So we've always had, we've, we've always assumed and considered the Western Basin spawning walleye to be the biggest population or the biggest spawning group. So we have walleye spawning on the reefs in the Western Basin. So if you're familiar with the Camp Perry firing range off of the uh, Davis Pessy power plant, that's a huge reef complex. There's lots of spawning. And then there are even Ontario reefs up, up in uh, Canadian waters that have a lot of spawning. But what we're seeing recently is it's not just the Western Basin spawning populations that are contributing. We're, we're seeing very young fish, even young a year fish at like three, four or five inches late in the summer all over the Central Basin. Uh, we really believe now that we have central basin spawning along the shoreline on on reef areas on the main lake shoreline in addition to all the western basin spawning so now we have contributions from all over the lake and it's one of the reasons the population is so large right now we're not just getting traditionally big year classes we're getting even bigger ones that look like they're being contributed from many different locations okay yeah that's really interesting all right so Another question for me on, like, just sort of my uh, another uneducated walleye fisherman. Uh, what are the biggest predators to walleye? And I, I realize that that changes through the the life stages of a walleye. But uh, you know, what preys on, let's say, full grown walleye? So if you're looking fairly exclusively in Lake Erie at, at predators to our adult, you know, uh, spawning population, it, it really is us as humans. You know, our commercial, okay. the commercial fishery up north in Ontario that harvests them, our angling fishery that harvests them. But if you look uh, at the aquatic world and, and things they worry about other than us, it, it would really just be, for the most part, musky. We do have both musky and pike. So, you know, big up to... 45, 48, 50-inch muskie and, and decent-sized pike, too. Now, they're, they're not in high abundance. Uh, muskie and pike used to be much more abundant uh, prior to uh, us changing the watershed and minimizing wetlands and, and doing a lot of damage to where they reproduce. But we are seeing a resurgence of muskie, and, and uh, both walleye and bass anglers are occasionally catching a big muskie. And that, that would be about it as far as... Uh, other fish eating walleye now when they're younger you know there there's always a chance of uh, smallmouth bass eating young walleye actually with so many very young small walleye with last year's year class we actually saw adult yellow perch eating young of year walleye so it's probably not a situation you think of very often but when you have giant year classes and lots of small walleye you know they're they're more abundant than some of the the prey sources. So yeah. until until they hit that eight nine ten inch range or bigger, uh, they can be prey for a lot of other fish species, even yellow perch being one of them. So, so that poses a or, or brings up an interesting topic. When when things are good, conditions are good for walleye. Are there other fish species in Lake Erie that are are 
hurting or, you know, that, that those conditions that are good for walleye are detrimental for another fish species? You know, what we see in Lake Erie is it, it's so timing specific. So when walleye spawn is fairly early, we don't have a, a lot of other fish spawning that early in Lake Erie. So we don't have a lot of overlap with uh, other species spawning during that time. It's, it's probably more of a late April, May, June time period that's critical for a lot of the other fish. We know yellow perch spawn primarily in mid-May, so May conditions are probably going to be more important to yellow perch than they are to walleye. Um, things like drum and smallmouth bass spawn later than walleye. So really, walleye are kind of early and on their own, and the conditions are specific to them after walleye are done then a lot of fish fall in a time frame that the conditions can impact what happens. Okay. All right. And as a, as a walleye angler, I think most people will probably uh, argue that we have too good of conditions for drum most of the time because <laughs> we have so many sheephead out there. Uh, <laughs> it, it's hard to imagine bad, bad year classes of drum. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So Jake, Jeff, what, uh, what questions do you guys have for Travis? Anything or uh, have we covered it all? Oh, I guess not necessarily. I guess it's related to walleye, but um, it's more, I guess, just kind of the landscape. You said that the Canadian waters or the province has more commercial fishing. Why is it that Canada commercially fishes and we on this state side don't? I guess what's the reason for that? <laughs> I guess to, to put everything on a level playing field, there there is actually commercial fishing in every single jurisdiction on Lake Erie. But what changes is what type of commercial fishing it is, what species it's legal to harvest. So here in Ohio, uh, we actually have a, a trap net fishery. They go out and they set trap nets. They're, for lack of a better description, they're kind of like a huge minnow trap. It's a net that has a funnel and, and fish kind of encounter it and swim into it. And then um, they, they get they get stuck in the, the portion of the net where they can't swim out of it. So they're not, it's not a gill net like up in Ontario. It's a trap net that's kind of like a, a funneled net that they just swim around it until they get harvested. But so we have a trap net fishery. We allow yellow perch harvest and it's managed by quotas. And, and every year we set a quota for our trap net fishery. But we don't allow walleye harvest. Up, up north in Ontario, there's a long history of a, a gillnet walleye fishery and, and they just they don't have the number of sportsmen accessing the lake uh and and sport fishing that we do and you know we're we're fortunate here in ohio we have lots of ramps lots of marinas we have great access to the lake as sportsmen and that that's developed over decades and decades of a lot of recreational activity out of ohio ports but it it's really just kind of the way the jurisdictions have developed you know ontario has that long history of commercial fishing and it is their primary use of lake erie compared to recreation and and down here we have a longer history of, of recreational use but but we do still manage a, a smaller commercial fishery so um there again five jurisdictions all with different desires and different needs but but working together to to manage a sustainable walleye and perch population and and uh there are species that migrate, but but we work together to make sure we don't overharvest. Can you talk okay. to some of the the differences between? Because you mentioned uh, trap netting versus gill netting. Can yeah. can you speak 
briefly to some of the differences there. Does I would imagine maybe trap netting allows you to release non-target species, or can you just kind of run through the differences between those two? Yeah, sure. So if you're not familiar with a gill net, it is an entanglement gear. So it it, it kind of looks like a, a giant volleyball net. So it's uh, panels of netting that has different size mesh, and that the size of that mesh determines what size of fish it captures. So you know, for a, a commercial fisherman targeting walleye up in Ontario, they, they set a gill net with appropriate mesh sizes for walleye. They set it where walleye are, and those walleye encounter the gill net, they get tangled up, and and then it does have a high mortality. So if, if fish get captured in it, they're generally not going to survive. It's a, 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 more, a high mortality gear, and, and it's intended for harvest. The difference with the trap net is, as, as I mentioned, you know, they basically swim into this uh, funneled net and then they can't find their way back out so they're just swimming around and they can actually be uh, with a dip net they can be netted out and then the fishermen can either choose to harvest it or release it in most cases now things like water temperature and depth come into it if the nets are set in deep water and and it's summertime and the water's warm there's going to be a lower survival rate even though the fish isn't even isn't entangled but our fishermen are great at, at knowing when and where to set nets and, and how to catch what they're targeting. So, you know, with our trap net fishery, they, they legitimately don't catch many walleye. They're, they're really good at targeting them towards either yellow perch or white bass or whatever they're legally fishing for. And the, the discard, discord mar- mortality isn't all that substantial because they're just not catching much of what they're not fishing for. Okay. And then, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but the the commercial catch, is that then being served in restaurants or, or where is that primarily going? Is that being turned into product, other fish products, or is that being consumed by people in restaurants? It, it's a lot of uh, restaurant consumption and, and then just uh, fresh fish like market sales. So okay. uh, it a lot of the the higher dollar uh, premium species like walleye and yellow perch do tend to stay in this region because they're usually sold fresh. They're going to either markets or restaurants and, and being sold without being frozen. If you look at some of the less desirable species like common carp and channel catfish and some of the other rough fish, we'll call them, those are actually sold to, uh, to markets around the, the U.S. and Ontario, and they might end up in uh, ethnic markets in places like New York and Chicago or even uh, farther away in the West Coast. But each each type of fish kind of has their own niche and their own uh, market demand. And uh, our processes are really good at identifying where each uh, species should go and, and what markets are best suited for it. Okay. So can a, can a private, uh, private angler <clears throat> sell fish to a, a a restaurant or do you have to have a commercial fishing license in order to sell fish like that in ohio it's absolutely illegal to uh to catch fish through recreational angling and, and sell them so okay. there are states around the country that have uh some different rules there are states that it it, it can be legal and I, i'm not going to speak to the different, you know, what, what type of licenses you need or what it takes to legally spell, sell sport caught fish in other States. But in Ohio, it's illegal. It's, you know, you can, you can harvest your limit of fish each day and, 
after you've gone home and cleaned them, you can choose to give them to someone. If you want to give them to a family member or friend, that's that's legal after you've harvested and, and cleaned them. But it, it's not legal to sell fish. So uh, okay. sport fishing in Ohio is uh, strictly recre- recreational. Okay. All right. Well, to, uh, I have a I have a good closing question, but I want to make sure that that Jeff and Jacob have gotten all their questions answered. So, do you guys have any other questions you have for for Travis? I got one more question <laughs> because I think if uh, we don't ask it, people are going to be asking us this. Um, the other states that border Lake Erie, um, do they have the same uh, daily limits on walleye, or um, are they set differently? So we, we're at a point right now where the the sport fishing walleye regulations are very similar around the lake. They're not they're not identical. If you if you go to Pennsylvania to fish for walleye, or you go to Michigan to fish for walleye on Lake Erie, you need to to look at their regs and make sure you understand them. But the, the bottom line is we're all agreeing to a, a safe level of harvest each year. But then after each of us get our own piece of that safe level of harvest. So we, we basically with walleye set a lake-wide safe harvest level, it's called a total allowable catch. And that gets broken up by jurisdiction. So as one of the jurisdictions, we in Ohio get our annual portion of that allowable catch. And then we know our fisheries and we set our regulations to stay within that, that year's safe level of harvest. So they will, the regulations will vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but that's simply because we each have different levels of effort. We have different you know, types of fisheries. And at the end of the day, we're trying to allow as much access to the resources as we can and stay within our annual safe level of harvest. So when you do see differences, that that's all it is, is that those other states have different types of fisheries and, and different regulations might be necessary to, to keep their fishery within their safe level of harvest. Okay. All right. So I guess, Travis, I should ask you, is there anything else that you want to talk about or, or make our audience aware with regards to the walleye fisheries? I, I think it's just worth mentioning some of this, you know, things you mentioned back at the beginning, you know, how, is this truly, you know, a great time and, and how it compares to the past? It, it's worth recognizing that right now we're in an extremely unique period for walleye on Lake Erie. And I, I'd love to sit here and tell you this is going to last for the next three decades and it'll always be like this. But history tells us that it, it changes often and it changes quickly. So I would just encourage everyone, if, if you have any interest in Lake Erie walleye fishing, you know, go out this year, next year, the next few years and and give it a try and enjoy it and, and take advantage of it while it's while it's really this uniquely incredible because it'll change. I, I've started a lot of conversations lately with, well, when we have fewer walleye in the future, <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, it, we talked about all the, the factors that impact reproduction and, and what it takes to get a good year class and how we don't have lots of, con- we don't have honestly any control over the type of year class we get each year. You know, we're, we're in a unique time. It's really good. You should go out and enjoy it. And I have no doubt it'll change. And, and all of a sudden we'll see some great type of fishing for another species at some point, but that, that's the way Lake Erie is. You take advantage of what's good right now. And, and right now walleye is, 
is as good as you're you're ever going to see. So it's a good time to go out and enjoy it. Okay. Well, I don't. I, that might be a good place to end it because I was just I was going to ask you I was going to give you a crystal ball and have you give us your predictions for let's say the next five years on on you know what do you, where do you see walleye in the next five years but it, you, you kind of answered it for us there uh, and I can't add to it I, you know I, I mentioned how long walleye live and how we had a 2003 year class that at the time was truly exceptional and it it carried the fishery for over 10 years. I will say we have three year classes right now that are similar to that 2003 year class. We have three of them at one time. So I, I'm pretty comfortable in saying the next five to 10 years of walleye fishing are going to be pretty spectacular. And if we don't get additional hatches past this point, you know, the, the size distribution of those fish will kind of change. We'll go into a period where we'll have incredible trophy fishing five, six, seven years from now, you're going to see more big walleye caught out of Lake Erie than you've ever seen as these large year classes get older. But it's very safe to say we're going to see five to 10 years of, of really phenomenal Lake Erie walleye fishing. And, you know, how long that lasts beyond that will depend on what we get for hatches in the next five years. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on and talking to us. I learned a lot in this. I, I always enjoy these conversations that we have with uh, any of you over there at uh, the Division of Wildlife. So thank you. And hopefully our, our audience enjoyed this. I'm, I'm sure they will. And, and I'm sure they're going to learn something out of this. So with that, we will let you go. And we'll talk to the, the tongue-tied there. We'll talk to our audience next week. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, thanks for using one of your broadcasts to, to talk about Lake Erie Walleye. Sure thing. That's going to do it for this week. Again, I want to thank Travis for taking time to come on the show and talk with us. I learned a lot, as I'm sure you guys could tell in that one. I learned a lot and really enjoyed the conversation. So if you guys enjoyed it, if you learned something, found something interesting, share it with your buddies share it with your family, your friends, whoever, whoever you think might get something useful out of this. That's how the show grows. That's how it continues to spread and and reach new people is by you all sharing, liking, telling your friends and family about it. So if you could do that, I would really, really appreciate that. And as always, thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.